Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is greater than all has given them to me, and no one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. Therefore, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for us. The Apostle Paul said, For I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that, keep what I have committed to him until that day. Before we open up God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is that which enlightens our thinking and lightens the path that we are on and that it is on the basis of your word that we come to understand reality as you created it, reality as it is, and that we can understand that there is a meaning and purpose to life no matter how random and chaotic things might appear, that you are in control and that you are working things out for your glory and your purposes according to the plan from eternity past. And so, Father, we pray that as we continue our study today, coming to understand more about who we are as uh, those who are in Christ, that we are children of light, and that we are to walk in a manner that is consistent with being a child of light, and that you would help us to understand these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4, and we are continuing to talk about what it means to be light in the Lord, sort of part two from last time as we continue our study in Ephesians. We have seen that Ephesians can basically be divided into three parts. The first part talks about the wealth of the believer, that is, what we have in Christ. The second part talks about the walk of the believer, how we are to think, how we are to live, and how we are to talk. Uh, The walk of the believer is just a metaphor that incorporates the entirety of the Christian way of life from how we think. And we always have to be reminded in our postmodern, emotion-driven world that it is not about how we feel, it is about what we think, and that the spiritual life is a life of thought and not a life of emotion and a life of feeling. And then the third section is on the spiritual warfare that we are involved in. So we have the wealth, the walk, and the warfare. That's the basic division of our study. So we're continuing in the middle section that began um, actually in four one through 6, 9. In four one, uh, the Apostle Paul says that, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And the calling with which we have been called is our new identity in Christ. It is, as it were, the calling, the vocation, the profession that we have now entered into as a child of God with a new identity that is 
uh, laid out first in Ephesians chapter 2 in the second part of it where it talks about in this age God has brought together Jew and Gentile into one new body. And it speaks of that one new body as a new man, a, a new building, and a new temple. These are just four different images or analogies that are being used to help us understand that all believers in this present church age, Jew and Gentile, are now united together in one new entity called the church. And individual congregations are just individual manifestations of the body of Christ. But we are to live today to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to serve God in the body of Christ, in the church, the church universal, which is the body of Christ, and the local church. And so that should be the focal point for the believer. In Ephesians 5.2, this walk is further defined as a walk by means of love, which is patterned after the way Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. That is the focal point. That is understanding what biblical love is all about. It is get exemplified in God's love for us, in sending his son to enter into human history and to die on the cross for us. Next time we have a positive command is the passage that we are in, in Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, where Paul says to the group, so I've translated that for y'all, and uh, for y'all, that is, those who are believers were once darkness. We are born darkness. We are born separated from God. We are born alienated from the life of God. Ephesians 4.18 says we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. But when we believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, at that instant, God gives us new life. He imputes to us or credits to our account the righteousness of Christ. Because we now possess the righteousness of Christ, that doesn't mean we're righteous in and of ourselves. We're still corrupt, dirty, rotten sinners. Never forget that. God does not infuse us. He doesn't make us righteous. He declares that we are righteous because we have been given by grace the righteousness of Christ. That means, along with that, we are born from above. We are given a new life, and that we are raised with Christ, and we are seated together with him in the heavenlies. That's our new identity in Christ. And so we were once darkness, but now, he says, you are, no matter how you live, no matter what decisions you make, no matter what sins characterize your life, you are light in the Lord. Whether you're walking with the Lord or not, whether you really believe it anymore or not, you are still light in the Lord. That is our new identity in Christ. That is who we are. But we are to walk in as children of light. We're to live a certain way, and that is what we are studying. And then it goes on to say, sort of a parenthetical, for the fruit of the Spirit. That's in the New King James, in the King James Version, and... Uh, uh, but And that's based on a set of manuscripts that are considered the majority of manuscripts. And, in, you know, we, when we look at the over 5,000 
manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. There's no ancient document, not from Caesar, not from Plato, not from Aristotle, uh, not from any of the ancient Greek or Roman writers do we have more than just a handful, and I mean like three, four, five copies, and usually most of those copies are over a thousand years from the time that they were written. But we have 5,000, over 5,000, they're discovering more and more all of the time now that we have over 5,000 copies of the New Testament, some of which date within 25 or 30 years of the time in which those books were written. That's amazing. And so uh, we have the Word of God. now, But there's some differences in these manuscripts, and one of those we'll see today, and it's important because some of you are using, for example, the New American Standard, New International Version, ESV, Holman, Christian Study Standard Bible, And others have New King James Version. Some of you, it reads fruit of the Spirit. Others read fruit of the light. And I'll talk about that in a a minute. I don't think this really makes a tremendous amount of difference. But the fruit of the Spirit, or the fruit of the light, is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then we are to evaluate and determine what is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. So three things I pointed out in the last couple of weeks as we studied this that we need to understand to get what's in this passage. What is Paul talking about? The first is what does the Bible teach about light? This whole thing with light and darkness is so important. It's a it's a metaphor that runs all the way through the pages of Scripture. The second thing, which we began to look at last time, is what the Bible teaches about our position in the light, our new identity, our legal position in Christ, that we are uh, children of light. That's our new identity. And then the third is this practical aspect of how we are to live. Think, act, talk as children of light. So we looked at what the Bible teaches about light, life, and darkness, and we saw that this relates to a God. It's a metaphor that God is light, and he dwells in unapproachable light. This is explained in 1 John 1, 5 and 1 Timothy 6, 16, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And second, that God dwells in unapproachable light. So that's who God is, and it relates to describing, it's a metaphor for his holiness and righteousness, as as, as we're going to see. So light, then, is used as a metaphor to describe the very fa- various facets of God's integrity. For example, a combination of his righteousness and his justice and truth. Now, that's just not something made up theologically. That's derived from Scripture passage we I used this morning as a call to worship in Psalm 89.14 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne, and uh, loving kindness, which is a very important word in the Old Testament, it really refers to God's faithful, loyal love to his people, and loving kindness and truth go before him. So that's the foundation of who he is, and that that whole concept is brought up by this light metaphor. Psalm 89.15 says, How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound, O Lord. They walk in the light 
of thy countenance. So even in the Old Testament, you have this same idea that we as believers are to live our lives a certain way, even though in the Old Testament it referred to the Israelites and the Old Testament saints, which included a number of Gentiles, by the way. So that was my sixth point. And then in the 14th point, we had a summary, got this far last week, maybe a little further, that what we have learned so far is that God is light. Second, we've learned that Jesus said he is light. He is the light of the world. This is an audacious statement when he comes on the scene. And the Pharisees understood that, and they just vibrated. It just it just made them nuts to hear him make these kinds of claims because they knew this was a messianic claim, and they were rejecting his claim to be the Messiah. Scripture also teaches that Jesus' light brings life into the world. This is from the opening of the Gospel of John. In him was life, and uh, his life was the light of the world. There's so much that can be said about this, and it's worth thinking about. But then there's this contrast with darkness. Then darkness uh, rejects the light. Later in John chapter 3, it says that they... Uh, the light came into the world, and the world rejected him. The darkness rejected him. And then we read that the one who comes to the light becomes a son of the light, and we are not to abide in darkness. There is this distinction. And darkness is what? The absence of light. There's nothing substantive in darkness. Darkness physically is the absence of light. And so those who live in the darkness uh, live with, on the basis of an absence of light, the absence of truth. And so there is an emptiness there. There is no meaning, value, or purpose in the lives of those who are in darkness. We also saw that Satan is the master counterfeiter of light, and he will appear as a minister of righteousness, as an angel of light, and so do his a demon, so do the fallen angels. So we can be deceived. He's the master counterfeiter. In point 15, we brought out a point as a result of knowing that God is light. We are to live our lives in the light, to have fellowship with one another. And this word fellowship, I keep harboring on this because we have to sort of reorient our thinking, harping on this. We have to reorient our thinking that Fellowship is not just social interaction. We have great social interaction with other believers, but when the Bible talks about partner about fellowship, it's talking about a partnership between God and man, if we're talking about fellowship with God, between God and man that is oriented to moving in the same direction. To achieve for us that means walking with God toward the goal that God has set before us. It is not just uh, having a good time with God or a good time with other believers. And so that when we come together with other believers, if we're going to really have biblical fellowship, then even though we may not have a great theological discussion around lunch, but the focal point is that we're still believers. That identity is very much part of who we are at that meal and that we are encouraging one another in one way or another in our in our walk with the Lord, it is definitely if it Christ is present by way of our thinking and our actions when we are 
socializing with other believers. If you just go out and play racquetball with your buddy, that doesn't mean it's Christian fellowship. You know, there's something conscientiously present there in terms of that relationship being grounded in our common salvation and identity in in Christ. So first John in first John John writes this is a message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then we have two conditions describing two different categories of believers. The first says that he has fellowship with God. I have fellowship with God. I'm walking in an intimate partnership with God in my life. Uh, but in, we see that he's walking in darkness. Then we lie and do, don't practice the truth. And I'm not going to have a show of hands because everybody fits this category. We've all done this at one time or another more often than we wish to admit that we think that we're right, we think we're walking with the Lord, and we're really not. But the contrast is, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that comparison is very important, then we have fellowship with one another. So you see, right there, it's talking about this partnership is related to two people who are walking together in the light as he is in the light. And then the conclusion is that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the foundation of our position in Christ. Two verses later, it says that if we confess our sins, well, if this means we're automatically forgiven and cleansed, then why would you even say 1 John 1, 9? So 1 John 1, 9 means that, that that's the basis, our foundation, our position. So we've looked at these things. And we're in the second question about what the Bible teaches about this position in the light. And in our 17th point, our new legal position that we are adopted into the royal family of God is light. Ephesians 5.8, you are light. First Thessalonians 5.5, Paul said, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. So this chart helps us understand that. we The Bible talks about our identity, our legal position on the one hand, but then we have, in contrast, we have our day-to-day experience. Some days we're walking with the Lord, some days we're not. And so on the left side, we have a white circle indicating we are children of light. We get into this light at the instant that we trust in Christ as Savior, it's done by the baptism by God the Holy Spirit. We are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. This is what baptism means. It signifies identification. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 6, 3, and 4, another foundational passage for understanding who we are. He says to the Romans, he says, Do you not know? that as many of us as were baptized, and see, that means identified, as many of us as were baptized or identified with Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, were identified with his death. The instant you and I trust Christ as Savior, we're identified with Christ's death on the cross. Now, that's a pretty abstract doctrine. It's pretty difficult for us to just capture that. So the the ritual of baptism, which is the other ordinance that we follow as Christians, is designed to give us a physical image of what that that identification is all about. 
that when a believer is immersed in the water, that is a picture of our identification with Christ in his death and burial. And then when we come out of the water, we're identified with his resurrection to new life. And so we have this new life, this new identity in Christ, and that is what Paul brings out in verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Now, that's not talking about water baptism there. That's talking about that spirit baptism that, is, that water baptism pictures. We were um, buried with him through identification into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. See, the purpose for this illustration of baptism is to teach everybody so when we have people, in fact, I have a uh, uh, a new friend that is a Messianic Jew. He got saved about 25 or 30 years ago uh, as a Jew, Jewish background. His college roommate led him to the Lord, and he was never really taught about baptism. He got onto some teaching via tapes later onto my tapes, and he just thought, he was never part of a church. Well, because he got involved with Chafer Seminary, started taking some classes, um, all, all of this, be, and he, he wanted to understand more about his Jewish background and its significance. He came to realize the importance of this, and it just so happened that he lived not far from a church where a friend of mine is the pastor, and he's gotten involved with that church. And this morning in the bitter cold waters of the baptistry of this church up in New Jersey, he was getting baptized. So that is, uh, that, that's, that's just a great, great thing. But the purpose of this, and the pastor there is explaining this to his congregation, that this is a reminder to us of what happened to all of us when we trusted Christ as Savior. We were identified with Christ on the cross for the purpose that we would live differently, that we would live in this newness of life, which is walking in the light. But our experience, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act, doesn't always conform to a child of the light. At any given point, we have all these contrasts in Scripture. We're either walking in the light or we're walking in darkness. We're not walking in twilight. We're one or the other. And I'm going to show you some other contrasts in just a minute. So we're either walking in the light or walking in darkness. So this is our positional reality. This is who we are. This is our identity. Let me give you another analogy. So you grew up in a family, and you had parents, and those parents had some sort of standards for the way people in that family would, would live. And whether they were strict or loose, you, there were standards. That's your family. That's your identity. You're a member of that family. But sometimes you did things that weren't acceptable to that family. Same thing that happens that we're in the family of God. We're, we're saved. We are light, but sometimes we don't live like we're part of that family. But God doesn't disown us or kick us out. The temporal, re, temporal reality is that we are, when we're walking in the light, we're walking by the Holy Spirit. That, to me, that is the umbrella command. There are other walking commands, but I think everything else is either a synonym for that or it is talking about some aspect of that. We're walking by the Spirit. And so Scripture says that we're to walk as children of light. That's basically talking about the same thing. 
But when we're walking by the Spirit, because God the Holy Spirit indwells every one of us as believers, we are being filled by the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it means to be filled by the Spirit. We're not being filled with the content of the Spirit. The Spirit already indwells us as believers. But the language of the text is that we are being filled by means of the Spirit, but it doesn't tell us what in Ephesians 5.18, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, it's not telling us what we're filled with in this chapter. It just tells us that we're being filled by the, by the Holy Spirit. But what's he filling us with? Well, the results are then given in Ephesians 5.19 and following, and it has to do with being uh, grateful to God. It has to do with singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It has to do with how it impacts our relationships. There's a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3.15 and following. And in Colossians 3.15, the results of the command are all the same as the results here. So if you have action A and it produces these 10 results, and you have another action described with different words that's action B, and it produces the same set of results, then action A and action B are roughly talking about the same thing. So in Colossians 3, what we have is to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. No mention of the Holy Spirit. The results of letting the word of Christ dwell within you is that you're grateful and you sing psalms, you teach and admonish others with the hymns that we sing, and it impacts our relationships in our families and in our home. So that means that being filled by means of the Spirit is roughly tantamount to letting the word of Christ dwell in you. So what we see is it's the Holy Spirit who fills us with the content of God's word. And then that works itself out in our mental attitude of gratitude and how we relate to uh, members of the family and others around, around us. But when we disobey God, we're not walking in the light anymore. We're walking in darkness. The sin nature is in control. In Romans 6, it uses the language, we're walking according to the Spirit, or we're walking according to the sin nature, walking according to flesh. So when we sin, we're no longer walking in the light, so we're bounced out, and we are now in darkness. We're walking in darkness, and when we confess sin, so with that arrow, we go back into the light. We confess sin. We are restored to that fellowship with God, and we can walk by the Holy Spirit again. 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message we have heard in him, or from him, and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, so we as believers can walk in darkness. So Ephesians 5, 8 is telling us that we are to walk as children of light. We are light. That is our new position in Christ. We were darkness. That was our position as unbelievers. Now we have a new position, and we are to walk as children of light, which implies that we can walk in darkness as well. And that's what 1 John 1.6 tells us about. So all of that brings us to this point where, in verse 18, we are not to partner or have fellowship 
with the works of darkness. We are to expose them. Now, this is something really interesting here. All through this section, you have this light and darkness action, but in passages um, that we see here in, in Ephesians 5, for example, in verse 13, but all things that are exposed. So last night I'm thinking about this, and I said, well, if you're in a dark room and you're trying to uh, develop film, um, that film has been exposed to light. That's why there's going to be a picture on the film. And that's really what this word means. If you look it up in the Greek lexicons, it means to to um, uh, look at something in the light. So you have this language that we have here uh, in these verses that we are to uh, expose these things by being manifest in the light. It doesn't mean going around and exposing it in other people. It is that it's the light of the word that exposes the sin in our own lives. And so all things that are exposed, that is the things in our individual lives, are made manifest by the light. And one of the greatest ways to expose corruption or to expose deception is to bring everything into the light, to get it all out so that everybody can look at all of the facts, and that's what is being talked about here. And it is only the light of God's Word that really exposes the truth. Jesus said in Matthew fourteen five fourteen and following, he said, you are the light of the world, talking to his disciples. That's our positional identity. And he says, a city that is set on a hill, using this analogy, cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, or, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So the experiential part is, let your light so shine before men, that's the, uh, our walking in the light, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When we are just living our life in light of God's word, that illuminates and exposes some things in darkness that are around us. So we come to that last part of what the Bible talks about, that walk in the light. Now, when it says, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, I brought up the point earlier that some manuscripts have have a spirit and some manuscripts have light. Now, the vast majority now of English translations go with a view of how you settle these differences uh, called the older manuscripts are best. But that, that, that sounds good. But older sometimes is just a, co- a copy of something wrong. And so it really doesn't doesn't always work. The vast majority of manuscripts have spirit, but but what they usually say, the way they justify it is they say that that some of these manuscripts have light, and um, they say that it's possible that the copyist could have seen light in the original and then changed it to spirit to be consistent with Galatians 5:22 to 23. Galatians 5:22 and 23 are at the bottom of the slide and that's the fruit of the spirit. And so it's feasible that that you had spirit in the original and a copyist is looking at it and he sees the word fruit of the and he expects spirit to be there, but it says light and lights in the passage so he scratches out spirit and when he makes his copy he puts in light instead. 
Now that's one possible one possibility, and um, and so what they say is so we have to go back to spirit because that was in the original. But this is really a two way argument. Uh, Paul could have originally written spirit because he wanted to show the connection between walking in the light and walking by the spirit. And a copyist could have then inserted light into a margin that was later put in there. So it could go either way. So what, what do we do with this? How do we determine what's originally there? Well, the conclusion is that the scriptures consistently show a contrast between two possible options. And so I don't think it matters whether you want to say light or spirit because the way the Bible uses those terms for example, we have four lines here. The contrast in the scripture is you can live like an unbeliever or you can live like a believer. Second line, you can walk in darkness as a believer or you can walk in the light. That is saying the same thing as the first line, living like an unbeliever is the same as walking in darkness. Living like a believer is the same as walking in the light. The third line, we see a language Jesus used in John chapter 15, where he said that we are to abide in him. So we're either not abiding in Christ, in which there's no fruit, or we are abiding in Christ, which in John 15 is abiding in Christ is a necessary precondition for producing fruit, just as walking in the light is a necessary precondition for producing fruit. And then we come to the last line from Romans chapter 8. There's a contrast in the phraseology is between those believers who are walking according to the flesh or walking according to the sin nature uh, in contrast to those who are walking according to the Spirit. So the phrase walking according to the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the light, are all saying the same thing. You're walking like a believer. You're living your life like a believer. So whether the original says, and the, I think the evidence is split, and whether it originally said light or spirit doesn't matter because walking in the light, walking by the spirit, the fruit of the light, the fruit of the spirit are the same thing. So we should not get too caught up with this. In John chapter Uh, 15, it doesn't describe the fruit, but Jesus says that if we will abide in him and his word abides in us, then he will produce much fruit. And so abiding in him is the necessary precondition for producing fruit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says that we're to walk by means of the Spirit. The result of that is the fruit of the Spirit. So what what I'm saying is that there's a precondition to be a fruitful believer. Now, a fruit is something that isn't produced until you're fairly mature. The analogy in all these passages is talking about the that which is produced by a plant. Fruit production is the result of a mature plant. Fruit production is not the same as maturity. It's not the same as growth. If you've ever tried to grow vegetables, if you're trying, you plant a tomato plant and you look at the little packet of the seeds, it'll say on, depending on the variety, it'll take 60 days or 90 days before it produces a mature fruit. All that growth that takes place 
and no matter how green and lush the tomato plant becomes, that's not fruit. That's just growth. And so often when you hear people talk about these things, they confuse fruit with growth. Growth has to come before this fruit, and only a mature plant produces fruit. You look at an oak tree, it takes a, a number of years before an oak tree will produce acorns. That's the fruit of, a, of an oak tree. So it takes time to produce fruit. It's not necessarily something that's going to happen just, just right away. It takes time for character transformation to occur. So the fruit of the fruit production is really talking about character transformation to be Christ-like. The description in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, notice it says the fruit of the Spirit. It's not talking about a bunch of different fruits. It's not plural. It's just talking about different facets of this one fruit, the fruit that the Holy Spirit, that which he is producing in your life, is going to be characterized by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against which there is no law. Now, Paul sort of summarizes that with three qualities in Ephesians 5, 9, that the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of the light is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. This is not talking about our justification righteousness, but the experiential righteousness that is developed as we grow. So we go back again to 1 John 1, 6 that talks about the fact that if we walk in darkness, we're not producing truth. That's that third quality. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship and we're being cleansed of sin because of the death of Christ on the cross. So when we look at these three qualities, goodness, righteousness, and truth, goodness really consists in the character of gracious generosity and kindness and benefits towards others. It is talking about being gracious and kind and generous with other people. The Greek word agathosune, it ends with that, that suffix sune, which means having a character or quality of something. The second word righteousness is dikaiosune. It means the same thing. It's the character and quality of righteousness. In Paul's prayer in Philippians 1.11, he says, having already been filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we have this language of fruit all the way through. And then the last one is truth, which is not just truthfulness, but it is a mindset that is characterized by orientation to reality as God created it. And we live in a world today when people do not like that. And so they think they can change their gender. They think they can change all kinds of things and violate all kinds of realities that God has built into his creation because, in essence, they are in rebellion against the truth of God. They are, as Paul puts it in Romans 1.18, suppressing truth in unrighteousness. So in our section, this takes us back to chapter 4, where Paul said, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. There is absolute truth. It's not a truth. It is the truth, the one and only truth. And it is in Jesus. Ephesians 4.24, it says, You have already put on the new man, 
which was created according to God in righteousness and purity of the truth. So the Bible understands that there are only two options, the truth or the lie, in the light or in darkness. John 17, 17, Jesus prayed to the Father and he said, sanctify them. That refers to mature them, grow them up spiritually by means of your truth. Your word is truth. It's an absolute truth. And in verse 19, he said, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by means of the truth. It is the word of God that is the truth. Contrast to this, in Romans 2.8 we read, But to those who are self-seeking. Now, we can't imagine many more descriptions of our current culture than self-seeking, self-absorbed, self-indulgent. And yet, the Bible says those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. What they're looking forward to is indignation and wrath from God. This is an end-time judgment. I mean, in the future of the lake of fire, this is talking about God's divine judgment and discipline in time and in history. So what should be the result of what we're saying? The result is that the Christian way of life begins by walking by means of the Spirit or according to the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the light of God's Word, with the result that, first of all, our thinking changes, our decisions change, our priorities change, our our relationships change, and they are transformed as we let the Word of Christ dwell richly in us. God the Holy Spirit uses that to transform the way we think and the way we act and the way we live with the result that we are going to then be glorifying God. That is the end result of what it means to walk by me, walk in the light as children of light. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study through uh, this important teaching that runs throughout the Scripture and is clarified and magnified for us in the New Testament that we are now in Christ and we are children of light and we are now to walk differently. We are a new creature in Christ. We're a new man, a new body. All of these metaphors define the fact that it's a new reality for us because we have moved from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that these are not commands to get saved or commands that will somehow motivate you to bless us but because you have already blessed us, you've already saved us, we are to live in response this way so that we can realize the benefits of our salvation and our blessing and that we can, in fact, begin to benefit that which Jesus spoke of when he talked about an abundance of life. Father, we also pray for anyone here anyone listening online, anyone that may listen in the future that doesn't really understand, well, how do I get this? How do I have eternal life? That it's simple. It's not what you do. It has to do with believing something, believing and trusting that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and that the only thing that matters is you believe him. You believe that he died on the cross for your sins and that by believing you have everlasting life. This is not an experience. It's a truthful reality, Scripture says. 
And so all you need to do, and you don't have to raise your hand, walk an aisle, or do anything else. All you have to do is is in your own soul just say, yes, I recognize that. I'm resting in what Christ did on the cross. I trust it. Uh, God knows that in his omniscience that, that when you when you recognize Christ died for your sins and you accept that uh, in your place, then at that instant you're saved. You become a new creature in Christ and your reality changes. So, Father, we pray that you'd make this clear to those here who need to hear the gospel and understand it and those listening, and that all of us may be challenged to be more thoughtful, conscientious, and focused, that we are children of light and we need to live as children of light. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.